Shall we bow our heads? God, we're so grateful, so very, very grateful for this day. Well, after the, fero the ferocity of the storm and the devastation that has taken place, that we can see the sun shine. And that, it, Lord, as it shines in our windows, Lord, to warm the earth, Lord, the sun of righteousness shine through our windows of our soul to warm our souls. Again, God, as we open the words of life, again we ask to be with us, to meet with us here with thy spirit, Lord, that our minds may be centered upon one thing, and that is preparing for that wonderful life of eternity, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The topic for the hour is, are we really Seventh-day Adventists? What is a Seventh-day Adventist? Uh, maybe we should review that for a moment because uh, traditionally we have gone to church every Sabbath morning. We've studied the Sabbath school lesson at least once or twice a day, a week. Uh, we have been giving our tithe and offerings, and we've been going through tradition and ritualism uh, to meet the requirements, what we thought were the requirements of God, so that we could be Seventh-day Adventists. We believe in the Seventh-day Sabbath, and we believe that that day begins on Friday night when the sun sets and ends when the sun sets on Saturday, Sabbath evening. And so uh, we believe that when you're dead, you're dead. I mean, when you die, there is no consciousness until in the resurrection. Uh, we believe that Jesus Christ came to this world in human flesh, that he came down to the level of fallen human beings and took upon himself humanity, combined it with his divinity, but never used his divinity. He used the divinity of the Holy Spirit to meet every temptation. Because that is a power that God has placed at the human in the hands of humanity to resist temptation and to resist the, the, the powers of evil. Uh, tragically, that the devil has brought in distortions among us to the point that many Seventh-day Adventists today don't really know what they believe anymore. And we hear one thing from the pulpit, we read another thing in Spirit of Prophecy, and we have discussions, and in those discussions there seems to be room for a lot of disagreements and still be a Seventh-day Adventist. I think that we must understand that a Seventh-day Adventist is one that believes in a soon return of Jesus Christ. That has always been from the very inception of our of our organization to this day that we believe in a soon return of Jesus Christ. Tragically, today we do not hear uh, preached from our pulpits a soon coming of the Lord. Adventists also believe in, a, in the sanctuary message. In that sanctuary message we see the high priest uh, ministering in the most holy place once a year in the Old Testament tabernacle. We find that in that, uh, in that sanctuary message, we find the whole salvation, plan of salvation, so beautifully portrayed. We see the sinner coming uh, with his little lamb and, and, uh, for sacrifice because he knows that he has transgressed the law of God. And we see in that sanctuary service, we see 
a group of people coming together once a year on the Day of Atonement because all the sins that have accumulated in the sanctuary during the year as the sins were confessed over the little lamb and, and then as the, the sinner made the sacrifice and as the, the priest took those sins into the tabernacle and cast them before the veil. And uh, at one, uh, then once a year, the high priest was, was to go into that uh, most holy place just once a year. And uh, uh, symbolically, then he was to take all those accumulated sins upon himself. And he walked out of the most holy place, into the, through the holy place, into the outer court. And there the remaining sacrifice was the... Uh, the he goat and uh, Azazel was he placed those symbolically all those sins on him and that animal was led out into the wilderness by a fit man which uh, portrayed the whole problem of sin from its beginning to end because as that animal was led out by a fit man into the into the wilderness uh, this showed the destruction the final destruction of Satan and all those that were deceived by him. And uh, so these, this is what Adventists really believe. As we begin uh, the thing, Adventists always believed that sin was transgression of the law. And any sin that is made has to be confessed and repented of. And a covenant with God not to do it again, you see. The children of Israel never understood the sacrificial system. They, uh, they, they got caught up in the ritualism and the traditionalism that was involved. And in this traditionalism and in this ritualism, uh, they missed the, the whole point of the sacrificial system. And I believe that Seventh-day Adventists, Ellen White makes it clear that we have repeated the history of Israel in every detail. And I think that we too have missed the point. No longer do we sacrifice lambs, but I think we have missed the whole point in that what the plan of salvation is to do. It's to save us from sin, not to save us in sin. You see? And in Matthew one twenty one. It says there that very definitely that the, the, the Messiah would come to save us from sin. And we have now come to a point in our experience where we have now insidiously accepted a position in which we can be saved in sin, which is the evangelical position. And therefore, if we do not understand that Jesus came to save us from sin and that he <coughs> extends the power and always has extended the power to the sinner to keep from sin, you see? If we don't believe that, we're not really seventh animals. And this is what is bringing tremendous problems in the church today, is that people are studying the word of God, they're studying the spirit of prophecy, and they're recapturing the old truths that God gave to the church all through its time, and that we find in the Old Testament, we find that all of these services pointed to one thing, that Jesus would come in fallen human flesh. 
And he would be tempted in all things just like any human being could be tempted. But he would use the power of the Holy Spirit to keep from those temptations and that he would not sin. As a result of his victory in his life, then he became the example to the human race. To show the human race there is no excuse for sinning, that all of us, through by the accepting of that power in the life, that we can overcome sin as Jesus overcame sin. You agree? That is what the sacrifice of Jesus is all about. Now, if you make Jesus coming to this world to allow you to be saved in sin, then you make the cross ridiculous. Because if Jesus can save us in sin, then all he had to do is to slap the hands of Adam and Eve and say, get back in the garden and behave yourself. But because sin is so insidious, so subtle, so dangerous, so treacherous, that Jesus came into the world and accepted the life of human beings in the flesh, in the fallen flesh of human beings, so that he could be tempted at every point like as we are, according to Hebrews. And in doing this, that he would again make it a way of escape for the human family, and that they could receive the same power that he had, and in receiving that power they could have the same victory that Jesus had, and by following his example, he could then trust them with eternal life. And every day... They were to grow in strength and grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. That as they overcame victory on every point, then then by that power in their life, they could be trusted with eternity. And after they could then live for a hundred billion years, they could still be trusted for eternity, you said. And that is what salvation is all about. And this is the distortion that has been brought into our midst that you cannot quit sinning and therefore be as good as you can and uh, do everything the church tells you to do and the Lord will overlook all the little problems, the little weaknesses in your character. But we are told in the book of education, well, let's go to volume 5, it's in volume 5, page 671, this inspired statement. Oh, I'm sorry, it's uh, Bizarre of Ages, 671. My computer gets a little mixed up once in a while, not too often, but it's uh, Desire of Ages, 671. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was given as a regenerating agent. Without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. The power of evil had been strengthened for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power, 
It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been brought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome, listen, all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. So... The, every hereditary and every cultivated tendency towards evil must be overcome. And that can only be overcome by the power of the Spirit. That is the way Jesus met every temptation. And that is the way we must learn to meet every temptation is to know that in our own strength we will fail. But in the power of the Holy Spirit we will have victory over every sin, every temptation. Now, in the light of what God has given this church in its marvelous truths, the third angel's message in verity is justification by faith, according to Evangelism 190. And uh, the, the, the tragedy that I see among Seventh-day Adventists today, that most Seventh-day Adventists do not know what the three angels are all about. And we'll discuss that later on in the afternoon. What is the three angels' messages? Uh, you see, the three angels' messages are messages that were given to this church to distinguish us from every other church. And in the very heart of that message is the victory over sin message. That is what the three angels' messages are all about, the victory over sin message. And that message, along with the sanctuary message, are so closely related, you cannot separate them. They belong together. <coughs> now, I want to show you here in the next few moments the, the definite evidence that we have of the soon return of Jesus. Because the six times in the book, of Matthew in the 24th chapter dealing with the the end verses we find that here that definitely the end will come unexpectedly if you read with me in the um, beginning with the 34th verse verily I say unto you this generation shall not pass away till all these things fulfilled be fulfilled now this verse points back to the, the, the first part of the verses. That's Matthew 24, beginning here with the 434th verse. Now it says, Verily I say unto this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Now this points back to all the conditions that Jesus lays down in the first part of the Matthew 24. It says there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines. There will be pestilence. There will be earthquakes in diverse places. It enumerates a lot of things. And then it comes to the point in the 8th verse. Uh, it says, and all these are the beginning of sorrow. So when, as we read down the chapter and you see all these wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, then it divides the chapter in the 8th verse and said all that's happened up to this point is the beginning of sorrows. And then it, in the ninth verse, it introduces to the time of trouble. It says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So today we stand there at the 8th verse, and we are now being introduced into the ninth verse, which is the time of trouble. 
And the time of trouble is progressive. I mean, it begins with what is taking place in our own church. When Ellen White wrote, we have far more to fear from within than from without. We have never understood what that means. When she wrote in volume 5, 463, she said our verse persecutors are going to be Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, so as we begin to see now that the ninth verse is already in operation, we're beginning to see what Ellen White didn't understand herself fully. And as you read down uh, things, you'll find it says, false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And why? Because, because iniquity shall abound and the love of many shall wax cold. And I think we see in evidence here the Laodicean condition that the, the Laodicean condition, people's uh, spiritual energy has waned to the point, and it says here, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold, but he that it shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And then it says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, an interesting statement in Volume 7 of the Commentary 985 says this. It says, After the truth has been proclaimed as a witness to all nations, notice, after the truth has been proclaimed as a witness to all nations, every conceivable power of evil will be set in operation. And minds will be confused by many voices, crying, Lo, here is Christ, lo, he is there. Then there will be a removing of the landmarks, an attempt to tear down the pillars of our faith. Now, friends, what you have just read is a prophecy that God gave to Ellen G. White. And it says, when the gospel is gone to the world, then there will be an attempt to remove the landmarks and the pillars of our faith. And we must see that we have reached that place in our history where then, since the landmarks, there's an attempt to remove the landmarks, and that's been going on for a number of years now, then it says there that the, when the gospel has gone to the, all the nations. So the only thing today that what God is waiting for is for us. That's who he's waiting for. And when he has enough of us that he can trust with his seal then, let me tell you, this world will come apart. And the last movements will be rapid ones. And the only thing that's holding the economy of the world today together is God. The hand of God is the only thing that's holding the economy. There is nothing to the economy. There's no foundations left. It's all gone. And it's a miracle that we see in Wall Street today. The, the, uh, I can remember six years ago when the, when the market was at 800, and I, I was telling everybody, you know, that had money in the market, I said, you better get out. God doesn't want you in there. And I said, it's going to go down one of these days. But listen, friends, it's went to 2,600, and it's, it's fluctuating between 25 and 2,600. And there's nothing, no reason to it at all. Nobody understands it, but the, the madness of men for, for, their, for greed and for more wealth, they're just constantly in there putting it up, putting it up, putting it up. And if you'll trace back to 1929, you will find that the farmers in America were in trouble. I don't know how it was here. The farmers were in trouble. Economically, there was great disaster on the farm. But there was also a tremendous climb in the market. 
And there was no reason for it back there until one morning the world woke up and find it was all gone. It went down. And I believe that we're teetering on the edge of total economic catastrophe. And the only thing that's holding the world together economically in every other way is the hand of God. And one of these days you're going to wake up and find that God pulled his hand away and the whole world went upside down economically. We'll talk more about that this evening. But I believe without a question that we are there, we're here at a very important hour and we're not understanding it, we're not recognizing it. And as, as we move on through this chapter, we find that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness, and then shall the end come. Now, when Ellen White wrote, she says, when the, when the gospel is gone to the world, then there will be an attempt to remove the landmarks and the pillars of our faith. And as we see a tremendous attempt by Satan to remove the landmarks of our church, and that I mean by the landmarks that we've just talked about, the third angel's message, the sanctuary message, and all the, uh, the things that are so dear that have made Adventism what it is. And as we see that attempt being made, then it must be that the gospel has gone to the world. Now, there is one great thing that must be done, and that is the testimony of God's people have to go to the world, which is the last call that God will make. And that last call will be made under tremendous persecution, under tremendous trial, and we'll find that in that little time of trouble before the end comes, that there will be many who will be suffer greatly. Homes will be lost. All the material things of this world will be gone. And God's people will be in caves and in mountains and in, in recluses of different parts of the earth and praying for the Lord to preserve their lives. And so when we go on down through the chapter, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now we know the abomination of desolation, my friends, is when we see uh, everything that God has portrayed to this church and has given to the world, when, when Adventists re, uh, resolve in their hearts to, re, to rescind their dedication to God and to this marvelous truth, and when we see the world going after a day in which God has not made, and not made holy, and when we see the church following in that direction too, we know that we find that the abomination is complete. And we can know that that will announce the soon coming of the Lord. Uh, I think without a question we are nearing, uh, very near that day. Now, the evidence is overwhelming that we have arrived at a, a very important hour. And as we go back now to the, 30, uh, the 35th verse, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. And we find that this generation now that sees all these signs taking place are going to see the coming of the Lord. And I think without a question that, my friends, this generation is it. No question. There is not time for another generation. You and I, if we're faithful to the Lord, will see the coming of the Lord. Now, the thrilling part of all of this is that some of us who have to lay down our lives because our age or our physical abilities will not allow us to endure through that time, the Lord has promised to lay the old, the young, and the weak aside. And let them rest in the grave. But also with this a promise, Ellen White gives us, says that those that die in the third angel's ex message experience 
will have a special resurrection as we go to the end of time. And as that special resurrection, that we will be raised up before the coming of the Lord, that we'll witness the coming of the Lord. So, praise the Lord, if you die in the third angel's message, my friends, you'll see Jesus come. Isn't that thrilling? And as we go down through the 30, to the 36th verse here, it says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angel of heaven, but my Father only. This is the first time that in this chapter that Jesus says that, the, that his coming will be unexpected. You notice it says, But the day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angel of heaven, but my Father only. And so then we move down to the... To the um, the 39th verse, and again the Lord is speaking, and knew not until the flood came and took all them all took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And of course this verse introduces Christ's statement concerning the, uh, the, the great deluge of Noah, in which uh, we find that uh, people have begun to believe that, uh, you know, there was only eight people in the church at that time, but that's not true. They had a large church back in Noah's day. You read the Spirit of Prophecy on this, and, and you'll find that there was a large church back there. But let us go back, if we can, and let me draw you a word picture of that day. We find that the world got in such a horrible state of sin that God saw that he had to do something before too long because... Men were giants in that day. They were living eight, nine hundred years old, and uh, they were just propagating sin by their old, by their long longevity. And so God decided that He had to do something and do it quick. And so He raised up a man of righteousness by the name of Noah, and He got him to begin preaching uh, the message of righteousness and victory over sin, and preparing a people that He said, "A hundred and twenty years are allotted." to you to prepare because God is going to destroy this world because of the sin problem and by flood. And so he, he took the design that God had given him to build a huge boat and then the church began to cooperate with Noah and they worked as workmen. Every day they, they followed the, the architect uh, and, and uh, went about pounding the nails and putting the thing together and they... they at last, after 120 years, the boat was finished. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. I mean, it looks sounds so silly. I mean, nobody's seen rain before. And they, they thought, well, you know, the, the world looked on and laughed and scoffed. And they said, to you crazy people, what do you think you're doing here? Uh, building something like this. And uh, here it was on dry land. And... Uh, the church people worked faithfully with Noah, building that ark. I imagine many of them died. Uh, you remember at this time, uh, there, the, the, um, there were many uh, great saints, Methuselah and others, that God finally laid to rest before the flood came. And uh, as they came down to the finish line of this thing, I mean, Noah's messages became more intense, and he began to stronger than he ever had any friends. He said, the day is drawing near where we're all going to have to get in. And then a marvelous thing, <coughs> phenomenon took place one day because animals began to gather. And as Noah stood by, I mean, and his son stood by, uh, they began to walk in an orderly form up to the uh, up the gangplank of the ark and into the ship. <coughs> and... Uh, 
uh, you can imagine the people standing by looking at such an event and saying, wow, what's going on around here? The animals all came in, two of the unclean and seven of the clean, and the birds flew in, and uh, the creeping things, everything came in, and people stood by and saw and witnessed this marvelous event. And still they scoffed. And the, the people... Um, Noah was working with the church and he said to friends prepare prepare to come in now because he said hey, very soon the door of this boat is going to close and the people that are not in uh, are going to be locked out and uh, the husband and wives uh, some felt the great urgency to go uh, some said well let's wait a little while I mean I don't want to get in there with all those animals it must smell terrible in there and uh, uh, some, uh, some said, well, if it starts to rain, then it's time to go in. And so the church began to argue him on its, among itself. And uh, the intensity of, of Noah's sermon got greater and greater. And finally he made his final call. He stood on the deck of the ship and he said, friends, very soon the door is going to shut. And he said, it, you better get in now. You better go. And I can see that as that call was made, many started to move forward and relatives and friends pulled them back and said, don't be ridiculous. Don't get in there. If it didn't rain, why, you'd, you'd be so embarrassed if you were in there and locked up with all those animals and it didn't rain. Just wait until it rains. And you know, old brother Noah, he's such a good-hearted guy. I mean, he'll let us in. Don't worry about it. And so the day came. As the church stood by, and before their very eyes, another great phenomenon took place because with an unseen hand moved that massive door into its place, and it went shut with a, with a thud that, that ran sh shivers down their back. And I could hear some of them say, I've got a feeling I should have been in. And uh, the days went by, was, there was revelry and, and uh, drinking and carousing, and the church uh, went to bed every night. Stars were shining above and, and everything, and they began to say, well, I guess poor old Noah, he's going to be embarrassed now because we'll have to go get the door open and let him out. And uh, six, seven days went by. And that last night they went to bed. Stars were shining as usual. They went into their homes. The sound of revelry and drinking and carousing were in the atmosphere everywhere. And then suddenly... They were thrown out of bed by something they'd never heard before. Thunder was rolling through the skies. Angry clouds of gathered. Lightning came out of their houses. Lightning was flashing. And in fear, they said, <clears throat> this is it. I can hear the first elder of the church cry out, yeah, the old man's right. Let's get down to the ship. And in the darkness, they stumbled and ran. And they got to the door of the ship and they knocked on the door. And they said, no, you're right. The church is here. We're ready to come in. And there was a long silence. And they said, did you hear us? And I can hear the old man's words behind the door saying, yes, brothers and sisters, I heard. But you see, I didn't close the door. God did. And no man can open it. And friends, the church perished in the storm. In the great deluge, all but eight of the people went down into destruction. 
And friends, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Am I right? Everything that happened there will happen once again. Again, the church. Again, the church will be just like it was then. Not knowing exactly what to do. Compromising, waiting for some greater evidence to propel them into a greater relationship. And that will never take place. And finally, the door will shut. And at that moment, all spiritual rationale leaves them. And they'll call darkness light, and light darkness and truth becomes air. And they're going to fight it with all the venom that the devil will provide. And I say today that possibly that is one of the greatest evidences that we have that the door will soon shut for everyone. Because the general close of probation may not be too far away from us. But right now, I believe, you see, you don't have to have the judgment of the living to have a closed door. I mean, Cain closed the door. Esau closed his door. The Jews closed their door. The Andaluvians closed their door. I mean, the, uh, Ellen White says in Volume 1 of Selected Message 63, she says those that stayed in Babylon or went back to Babylon in 1844 closed their door. And so I see the closed door theory is still in operation today. And I believe that men and women today are closing the door. I believe that leaders and pastors and laity alike are preparing themselves for the closed door. If they rise up against the straight testimony, my friends, they're preparing them for the door to go shut. And when it's shut, it can never be opened by a human being. It can never be opened again. And let me tell you, it's a serious thing to face this hour when you know that the closed door theory is going on around you. When you see people that you've admired and looked up to and believed in and seeing them doing things that, uh, in which they, they rise up against the straight testimony, they rise up against truth, and they're calling darkness light and light darkness and truth becomes air, and they're almost vicious sometimes in their fight to put down truth. And so we see here the second time that Jesus says that it will come unexpectedly, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then it says, Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, and one shall be taken, and the other left. And the 42nd verse, Watch therefore, this is the third time now, Watch therefore, for ye know not the hour that the Lord doth come. And so we now have three times in which the Lord is said that it will come when you're not expecting it. And then the, in the 43rd verse, we read, and know this, that if the good man of the house had known in, in the watch which the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. And so we find the fourth time Jesus says that it's going to happen unexpectedly. And then in the 44th verse, therefore be ye also ready for such an hour as ye think not the Son of Man cometh. So the fifth time we see that it's going to be an unexpected event. You see, when we begin to look at the situation that we are in today, we find there that we find people who are going on and waiting for the Sunday laws to, to put in them, propel them into a greater relationship with God. And when that moment strikes, it's already too late. Their decision is made one way or the other. My friends, when we come to the Sunday laws, 
that are going to be trans will soon be trans uh, transpiring. We will find you're you're either good or you're evil. You're either right or you're wrong. You're either a wise virgin or you're a foolish virgin. And let us move on. And then it says, when then is is a faithful and wise servant whom his lord have made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Now, what is meat in due season? Meat in due season, my friends, is truth for today. Uh, it is the, the, the truth that God has given to the entire world through the Adventist church. And it, it says, and so then is a faithful and, who is then a faithful and wise servant whom the Lord hath made ruler over his house, hold to give them meat in due season. So God has a special message for each one of us here today. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, whom, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you, that ye shall make him ruler over all his goods. But if, and, but, and if thou, that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite with his fellow servants, smite his fellow servants, and eat and drink with the drunken. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour, and he is not aware of. And so, as we see here, here is the sixth time, that, uh, and the seventh time that the Lord says it will happen unexpectedly. Let's go back to the 50th verse. The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and then, that's number six, and then number seven, in an hour that he is not aware of. So seven times here, we find in the last book of the uh, chapter of Matthew 24, we find that the Lord says that the event, the second coming, will be an unexpected event. As we look at volume 6, page 129, uh, what happened volume 6? Here it is. Volume 6, 129, we read this inspired statement. We are living in the closing scenes of this perilous time. Of these perilous times, the Lord foresaw the unbelief that now prevails respecting his coming. And again and again, he has given warning in his word that this event will be unexpected. The great day will come as a snare on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth, Luke 21, 35. But there are two classes. To one, the apostle gives these encouraging words. Ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief, for Thessalonians 5, 4. Some will be ready when the bridegroom comes and will go in with him to the marriage. How precious is this thought to those who are waiting and watching for his appearing. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, and he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Those whom God loves and loves enjoy this favor because they are lovely in character. The great and grand work of bringing out a people who will have a Christ-like character, who will be able to stand in the day of the Lord, is to be accomplished. Satan will bring in every kind of theory to pervert the truth that the work will go hard, for since the fall of Adam, it has been 
the fashion of the world of sin. But Christ is on the field of action. The Holy Spirit is at work. Divine agencies are combining with the human in reshaping the character according to the perfect pattern. And man is to work out that which God works in. Will we as a people do this God-given work? Will we, be care we will be carefully heed all the light has been given, keeping constantly before us the one object of fitting students for the kingdom of God. If by faith we advance step by step in the right way, following the great leader, light will shine forth on our pathway, and circumstances will occur to remove the difficulties. The approval of God will give hope, and ministering angels will cooperate with us in bringing light and grace and courage and gladness. So, friends... It's going to happen unexpectedly. One night you'll go to bed, and the world will be just like it is today. It is true that as we go to the end, things will be more intense. There'll be a gradual progression of, of problems that will face us. But when you wake up one morning, you're going to find that the world has changed, and it'll never be the same again. And at that moment, when that strikes... You're either wise or you're foolish. You're either right or you're wrong. There'll be absolutely no time to prepare. And that is, my friends, is the urgency of this message today, is this is the hour of preparation. This is our day. This is our day to perfect our characters through the power of the Holy Spirit. There may not be many more days to get ready. And it, let us not be in the same position that the church was in Noah's day, that they prolonged the day of visitation, they prolonged the day of preparation, until finally the door was shut and there was no hope. You can imagine the anguish of those people as they clung frantically to the ark, as the wave rolled over the ship, and finally they were all washed away and they were lost. Not because they didn't believe, but because they didn't, believe enough to make, the re make ready, that their characters were not ready for what was going to happen. And they did not believe, they did not go through the door. And let me tell you today, God is inviting us to go through that door before it shuts. What do you say? And we must make that preparation. We must make ready now. We must study and pray. We must be on our knees pleading with God as we see the church moving in a direction in which is so dangerous. When we see people that are almost totally unprepared for the crisis that will soon strike. As we see leaders and pastors and laity alike who are indifferent to the cause of God, who are indifferent to the great message of righteousness by faith, and who are standing up against it. As we see this, we should be on our knees pleading for their souls that God in some way will bring them through an experience that will turn them back before the door is shut. As you begin to look at the 50th verse, 49th verse, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunken. Now this doesn't mean that you're going to the pub and eating and drinking alcohol. This means that the people in the church have participated in a wine in the wine of Babylon. You see? And they have participated in the wine of Babylon and to the point where their minds are intoxicated with a, with a theology which is not compatible to the message that God has given. And therefore, as we begin to read down, it says, The Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, in an hour that he is not aware of, and he shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There, there shall be weeping and gnashing of trees. Friends, what is a hypocrite? Now, hypocrite is a dangerous word to use because you call a person a hypocrite, and you might end up in a fight. But let me tell you, hypocrisy is saying one thing and speaking one thing and living another thing. 
And Laodicea is hypocritical. It's in a messy, it's living a lifestyle that is not in harmony with God's plan. And that is a hypocrisy. And let me tell you, there's one thing that God can't stand, and that's hypocrisy. And that is why the Laodiceans are spewed out of the mouth of God because of their hypocrisy. Because they, be, they say one thing and do another thing. And my friends, we must be living this message in every detail so that the world can look at us and know that we have been with God. And that those people that, that are standing up against this great message that God has, the righteousness by faith message, and making accusations against us, that we handle those accusations in such a way that we don't defend ourselves, but we're ready to defend the truth with our very life. And in the sweet spirit of Jesus will flow out of us to those people. You see, that was the difference with the apostles uh, uh, after Pentecost from before Pentecost. Before Pentecost, James and John said, Lord, bring fire down and destroy these people. Before Pentecost, Peter was trying to cut somebody's head off. But after Pentecost, they had the sweet spirit of Jesus. And poor Peter could hang upside down on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And friends, that must be the experience of everyone in this room. If we're going to endure to the end and be saved, what do you say? We must have that sweet spirit experience no matter what they do, no matter what they say, no matter how we're treated. If we're disfellowshipped, we can respond to it in a sweet experience and still go back to church and sit in the pew and respond like Jesus would respond. Well, friends, the end of this world is not near. The end of this world is here. May God help us to go through that door before it shuts is my prayer. Because let me tell you, very soon, you and I are going to witness the coming of the Lord. I believe that with all my heart. That's the only thing that drives me around the world, preaching like I do, is because I believe it with all my heart and soul. The end is coming. The end is coming. I wake up with it. I walk with it. I go to bed with it at night. It's coming. It's coming soon. And tens of thousands of Seventh-day Adventists are going to be lost because they never heard their own message. And so God sends me out to preach. But let me tell you, friends, if you're faithful to the Lord, I can promise you right now, if you're faithful to the Lord, you'll see Jesus come. Whether it's in the resurrection of the third angel or whether it's living through for translation, you're going to see the coming of the Lord. And someplace now, I'm going to take you on a little, a little excursion. I'm going to project you. Let's project ourselves out in that day. The Lord's given me the talent of drawing word pictures. Let me draw this picture for you. The plagues of fallen. The world is in a horrible state. And we find that the God's people now are separated. They're in little companies gathered out on the mountains, in the caves, somewhere in dungeons. And they're waiting and crying out for deliverance because down below is the mob who are seeking for their life. And they're searching the sky because they know that there's a certain signal that God has given. It's a cloud the size of a man's hand. And they know, and they're looking in the sky and searching for that little cloud. And finally, maybe a little child. Now, because the third angel's message has, the third angel, those that have been ra already been raised up in the third angel's message, they have been raised up, and they're all there. We're all there. And so maybe a little child standing alongside a daddy and mother and pulling his daddy's pant leg, pointing up and said, Daddy, there's a little cloud. Do you think it might be Jesus? And the, every eye is fastened on that, on that place. And that little cloud gets larger and larger and 
Soon the angels could be heard in their beautiful anthem as they sing. And suddenly all the whole heavens is filled with angels. And in the center of this glorious scene is Jesus himself and God the Father. You see, you wouldn't think God's going to stay in heaven, would you, when, when all heaven's going to be emptied, it says, and all the angels are coming, and Jesus is coming. You think God's going to sit up there and wait for uh, us to come back? Oh, no. Gee, God the Father's coming with him. They're going to be sitting on their throne there. It'll be a glorious scene, surrounded by myriads of angels, of holy beings, and the angelic chorus choir is singing beautiful anthems of praise and thanksgiving. And in the midst of all of this, my friends, suddenly we see the angels, the angels coming, and they raise the dead. All that have died in the, in the hope of the, of the resurrection through the endless ages of time, millions and millions of them, are now brought forth from their dusty beds, and they are caught up. Uh, with us who are living now, with the, those that have been raised in the special resurrection and those that are translated, I mean, they're, they're raised up to meet him in the air and so shall they, what, ever be with the Lord. My friends, that is a glorious moment. And you know something? You know something? Ron Spears is going to be there. Praise the Lord. I'm going to be there. Nothing can stop me. I'm going. How about you? I'm going to be there. Nothing can separate me from that. Why? Because God said so. God Didn't God promise it? If God promised it, we better accept the promise. And we better make the preparation. And as we make the preparation by the Holy Spirit's power, there's no question where we're going to be. We'll be there. And we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And think of that tremendous experience as those angels now surrounding us and all the redeemed of all ages, now we're going heavenward. Now, Ellen White makes a statement in her early writings. She says that we, will, that we will be seven days ascending to the throne. Seven days. Think of it. Seven days we're going up, up, up. Just what, if possible, that we might spend the Sabbath in some unfallen world. Wouldn't that be lovely? That uh, you can imagine the preparation that that... That, uh, that unfallen world would make, why they, the greatest honor that they could have after the 6,000 years of witnessing the 6,000 years of the great controversy and seeing what's been going on down in this world and then have the privilege of entertaining God's people on the Sabbath as they go back to heaven, go on to heaven. And you can imagine, look at the scene, the gates of the capital of that city swing open and here's God the Father, God the Son leading the, the, the host of the redeemed right down Pennsylvania Avenue in, in, in that uh, capital city. And as the crowds line the streets, waving their palm branches, and they listen to the songs of the redeemed as they come marching in. A song of victory. And my friends, as we celebrate the Sabbath with these beautiful people, and then on out through space we will go until the very moment you could actually see the, 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 the reflection of the tremendous gleams of glory reflecting from the domes of the capital city of the universe. You can actually get a, a see the, the, the foundation, the 12 foundations and the, the mighty walls and the, the gates of one solid pearl. And as the command of God, those gates swing open wide. And the redeemed from all sides of that four square of that city, they began to sweep in across the sea of glass. And there Jesus and God the Father take the throne. 
and is surrounded by the angelic choir as the angels lift their voices in songs of praise. And what do they sing? They sing a song of thanksgiving because the controversy is ended. They were never created, friends, to do what they've done, to be participating in this great controversy, and they're so thrilled that it's all over with. And they sing their song of thanksgiving. And as their song comes to an end, as their anthem ceases, then the redeemed of all ages, millions upon millions of them, lift their voices in, a, in an anthem of thanksgiving and praise that they're there standing upon the sea of glass. Do you see yourself there, friends? Do you see yourself in that, great, in, that, in that great moment? Standing around the great white throne, the roll is called, and everyone says, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Oh, praise the Lord, friends. We're going to be there. We're going to be there. We can't miss it for anything. And friends, let me tell you, it's going to be a great moment. And finally, my friends, uh, as we go through the thousand years of the great millennium, as we have the opportunity now to go to the recording angels and they say, I've searched over heaven, they're not here. Could you tell me why? And the, the recording angel pushes the great computer, you know, and before your very eyes passes the life of that individual and you'll say, God is good, God is merciful, God is just. And after the thousand years, the new Jerusalem comes down from God out of heaven. And it, uh, the Mount of Olives cleaves in two like a mighty plain, and that beautiful city of God, Foursquare, rests in that place. And God the Father, the Son, and the angels, and the, and the redeemed enter into the city. And then as God and the Son and the Father are seated on their thrones above the city, at their command the wicked of all ages come forth. Billions of them, some have estimated, could be a hundred billion people. And there they are like the sands of the sea surrounding the city. And the devil has gone forth. He is released now from his, from, his, uh, from his isolation. And now he goes forth and he convicts them and converts them that this, that city belongs to them. And because of their sheer numbers they can have it. And as they surround the city, as they come up to take the city, then suddenly the final phase of the judgment takes place. Every knee bows. Every tongue confesses. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who stand of us who stand upon the wall and witness this final phase of the six thousand years, seven thousand years, the great controversy, even we will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is love and kindness and mercy and justice. And then at that moment, my friends, at the command of God, the fire comes and it go it destroys every trace of sin and sinners. Don't ever believe that God doesn't destroy, my friends. He does. He creates. He has the right to destroy. And he has the right to destroy sin and sinners both. And friends, in that moment, as the fire falls, every, every sinner and all the traces of sin are destroyed. And as far down as sin is gone, thousands of feet into the earth today, we're pumping out the oil, which is the, what is left of the antediluvian world. The, all the decayed animal matter and, and vegetable matter that is down there, that's what the oil is, and we're pumping it out of the earth. As far down as that is gone, that's how far the fire will go until there is not one trace of sin or sinners left. And as we stand there upon the wall and we look out over this burned-out charcoal heap with the smoke ascending up, and suddenly, at the command of God, we turn and listen and then turn back and before us is a new world. 
before our very eyes we're watching a recreation at the at the words of jesus we find that beautiful valleys appear beautiful hills are there beautiful streams are flowing into beautiful lakes And he speaks again, and beautiful animals are roving over the hillsides. He speaks again, and beautiful birds are warbling their beautiful songs as they fly through the air. And you're standing there on on those walls of that beautiful city of God and saying, Praise the Lord, isn't it beautiful? Oh, I'm thrilled I'm here. I'm so glad. I'm so everlastingly glad to God that he, he gave me that thrilling message of righteousness by faith and victory over sin. And that I was willing to be made willing to let God's will be my will. And to surrender myself so completely to God that I can have victory. And now I can live forever. How long he takes to recreate the world, I don't know. He may take seven days again, I don't know. But the thrilling part of it is that you can witness it all. You can be part of that group that stands on those, those beautiful walls of that beautiful city of God and, and listen to the voice of God as he brings forth this beautiful creation once again. And then the most wonderful part of it all, you see that God has prepared a city for us and he's prepared an apartment to live in when we go to worship on the Sabbath day. But the best thing of all, he's also going to allow us to have a country home. And I'm so glad for that, aren't you? Because I'm a country boy. They say you can you can take the you can take the the the, uh, the boy out of the country, but you can't take it out of his heart. And when I'm home, I live in the country, and I my my home sits about 200 feet above a beautiful lake, and I've got Mount Rainier, which is 14,000 feet in my backyard. And I'm at the end of the road; nobody goes by except to visit me. And when I'm at home. There's nothing more I love to be out in the garden. If you see my flowers, oh, praise the Lord for those beautiful flowers. The dahlias this year and all the roses and the things were just so gorgeous. And many times on Fridays when I drive out of my driveway to go to the airport, I look back and see that beautiful yard. And then I think how wonderful it would be when I get to heaven. And I can have my beautiful flowers and I can plant my vineyard. You see, I've got my place all planned out already. You see, I can see it. It's a beautiful hill surrounded by a lovely forest with a beautiful brook trickling down into, into, the, into a mirror-like lake. And there I can see the swans swimming on the lake. And there before the lake I'm going to plant my orchard and my vineyard and my garden. And there as I've built my home so many times for Betty and I, I'm going to build one last house for us all for the everlasting ages of eternity. It's real, friends. It's really real. It's real to me. I pray that it'll be real to you. Because I can see it. And I live it. My heart is there. You see, where there is no vision, what happens? People perish. What's happened to the Seventh-day Adventist Church? We lost our vision. We lost our vision of a finished work. We lost our vision of heaven. And friends, let's recapture our vision. What do you say? Let's recapture our vision of a finished work. Let's recapture our vision of heaven. Because we're going soon, if we're faithful to the Lord, we're going to leave this world behind. And then after a thousand years, we're coming back to be restored in a beautiful place that God will make for those that love Him with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their bodies. Oh, friends, I invite you into that beautiful relationship today. 
Oh, God, help us to live for him and him only. May we, we, we take our eyes off of this world and get our eyes upon the heavenly because it's coming soon. And we must prepare our lives right now to live in that beautiful place forever. And we must be able in this marvelous experience that God wants to give to his church in this final hour, we must portray that beautiful experience to our, our fellow church members. We must portray it to the world around us, to our neighbors and our friends. We must only have one thing that cop- captivates our mind and our attention. Oh, it's true that we must go to work every day, that we keep the food on the table and the, and the roof over our heads and provide for the family. But there should be only one thing that really captures our attention, and that is to prepare for our eternity and then to prepare others for eternity so that we can finish this work soon and go home. My friends, as, the, as in Paul's day, the whole world heard the message in a very short period of time. Why? Because of the tremendous experience that God put into their hearts. And they believed with all their heart and soul in what they were doing. And we find the midnight cry message, the same experience came back to the church and they believed with all their heart and soul of what they were doing. And my friends, the whole world heard it because they believed it and they lived it. And friends, today the whole world will hear it if we live it and believe it with all our hearts. That's the way the work will go, like fire in the stubble, because of the experience in our lives. And that experience will bring persecution. Those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall what? shall suffer persecution. And the reason that we haven't had persecution is because, my friends, our godliness is not right. In, in Great Controversy 48, we read these inspired words. There is, an, there is another and more important question that should be engaged the intention of the churches today. The Apostle Paul declares that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will shall suffer persecution. Second Timothy 3.12 Why is it then that persecution seems in a great degree to slumber? The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standards and therefore awakens no opposition. The religion which is current in our day is not of a pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. It is only because of the spirit of compromise with sin, because the great truths of the word of God are so indifferently regarded, because there is so little vital godliness in the church, that Christianity is apparently so popular in the world. Let there be a revival of the faith and the power of the early church and the spirit of persecution will be revived and the fires of persecution will be rekindled. And friends, I can promise you today that if you live that life, that very soon the fires of persecution will rage and many of you will be persecuted. Many of you will end in prison. Many of you will be killed for your faith. But friends, I do not fear death. The only thing that I fear is that I will not live the life today. Because if with the power of God I can live that life today. If I live that life today, there is no one can kill me forever. I will rise again. May God help us to enter into that experience today, friends. Now, we've come to a serious moment. Most of us here have dedicated ourselves to God many times. We've gone through that and we've said, God, I'm going to do it. You're like ancient Israel, do you remember? Remember when they were walking around the mountain? They said, to, they said to Moses, go back and tell God we're going to do it. And did they mean it? Oh, yes, they meant it. But my friends, that old covenant experience 
uh, didn't go very far because it was just 40 days later they were dancing around a golden calf. You see, Laodicea is under the Old Covenant, and there's no salvation in the Old Covenant. There's only salvation in the New. The New Covenant is the everlasting covenant. It is the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve if they would yield their will and their mind to him that God would restore them to the Garden of Eden. That's the New Covenant. That's the everlasting covenant. And there's only salvation in that covenant. There's no salvation in the Old Covenant. Laodicea is under the Old Covenant. They're telling God, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. But they don't do it. They can't do it. It's impossible to do it because you can't do it in your own strength. You can only do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we need to make a covenant with God this day, the everlasting covenant with God that will carry us through to the kingdom. What do you say? If we don't make that covenant, everlasting covenant, friends, we'll be lost. And we must, we must make that covenant with God. And we must be willing to be made willing to merge our will with God's will so completely that our mind will be God's mind, our thoughts will be God's thoughts, our very life will be God's life, and all of God's power will be our power to do everything that God has asked us to do. And let me tell you, the power is coming. The power is coming. I don't know about you, but I know it's coming. I feel it in my life every day. It's coming. There's only one thing that possesses me, and that is getting ready and get other people ready. I think of nothing else. The other day I was leaving on a trip, and, and my wife, uh, it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, and my wife put her arms across the door. As I was getting ready to go, I had my arms loaded on both sides, and she said, I want you to know I still live here. <laughs> Because there's only one thing that captivates my mind, how to get the job done. And uh, she said, Ron, you're killing yourself the way you're going. And I said, no, I'm not. The Lord's holding me up. And so, friends, we need, we need every one of us here to make that covenant today. What do you say? We need to make that everlasting covenant with God that will never be broken. Till time shall last in this world, it can never be broken. If you make that everlasting covenant with God and, and, and de desire with all your heart and soul and mind and body to live for God and Him only, and that you study and pray and you apply yourself in preparation, then you'll prepare others. How many will stand with me in that de dedication of the everlasting covenant with God? Would you stand with me today? <coughs> Friends, it's a serious hour. Don't take it lightly. Don't, don't, don't stand up and then go out of this room and go home after these meetings over and, and get back into the old way of living. There's no time for it anymore. This covenant with you making with God must last forever. What do you say? It must take you through to the kingdom of God. There's no time now to turn backwards. It's only forwards. I think of the, one of the French generals in... One of the wars, World War One, he, he was in a terrible situation. He was surrounded. And he sent a messenger running to uh, his general because the general had asked him to retreat. And so he sent a runner, runner back to his general and he said, my right wing has collapsed, my left is falling back, but he said, I'm going to attack. And friends, it's time to attack. What do you say? It's time to attack under the power of the Holy Spirit. Not under the power of, that we can create, but it's time to attack. Our right wing is collapsing, the left is falling back, but it's time to attack. As you read there in, in volume 8 of the Testimonies, 41, it talks about a great war. Let me read it to you. Uh, 
It says in vision, I saw two armies in terrible conflict. One army was led by banners bearing the world's insignia. The other was led by... Um, led by the bloodstained banner of Prince Emmanuel. Standard after standard was left to trail in the dust. As company after company joined uh, from the Lord's army joined the foe, and tribe after tribe from the ranks of the enemy united with the commandment-keeping people of God, an angel flying in the midst of heaven put the standard of Emmanuel into many hands. And while a mighty general cried out with a loud voice, Come into line, let those who are loyal to the commandments of God and the testimony of Christ now take their position. Come out from among them, and be separate, and touch not the unclean. And I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters. And let all who will come up to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. The battle raged. Victory alternated from side to side. Now the soldier of the cross gave way, as when a standard bearer fainteth. But their apparent retreat was but to gain a more advantaged position. Shouts of joy were heard. A song of praise of God went up, and angel voices united in a song, as Christ's soldiers planted his banner on the walls of the fortresses, till then held by the enemy. The captain of our salvation was ordering the battle and sending the support to his soldiers. His power was mightily displayed, encouraging them to press the battle to the gates. He taught them terrible things in righteousness as he led them on step by step, conquering and to conquer. My friends, that's the battle that is before us. It is already begun. We must be faithful soldiers in this great army. We must not retreat now. It's time to move forward. It's time to move and, and take the standard that the angels will put into our hands and carry that standard to the very gates. Let nothing deter you. Let nothing stop you. May God help us, shall we pray. God, we, we know that we've come to a serious hour, Lord. This was not my message this morning. This was your message preached through me. But God, it is your message for these dear folks that have come. Bless them, encourage them. We know that many here today are in desperate straits. Some are being disfellowshipped. Some are being persecuted. Some are, are being taken out of positions. But Lord, it's only a sign of the end of time. It's a sign that very soon the, that Jesus will come, and he will come unexpectedly. Probation will close unexpectedly. Oh, God, help us to prepare for that day. Oh, that we might honor you, that we might hold up your beautiful name and your beautiful life and character before the world in our life. And bless this congregation, Lord. Encourage their heart. Keep their eyes single to your glory until that great day when time and eternity shall meet, that you can then make each one of us here part of that great eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please seated, please?